Welcome to the C&D podcast. On 15th of July, 2021, C&D brought together a panel of experts to host its second annual Racism and Pharmacy webinar. After the shocking results of last year's survey, this time around, we considered if and how pharmacy professionals' experiences of racism had changed in the past 12 months. We joined the webinar as CND's clinical and custom content editor, Naima Kalachan, reveals some of this year's survey findings and introduces our esteemed panel. So first of all, I'd like to introduce our six panel members. With us today, we have Amandeep Dole, Head of Professional Belonging at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, Elsie Gomez-Campos, President of the UK Black Pharmacists Association, who'll be joining us a little late this morning, this afternoon, um, Noel Kazeri, Clinical Pharmacist and, pharm- and the Pharmacist Defence Association Representative, Janice Perkins, Chair of the Community Pharmacy Patient Safety Group, Mahendra Patel, Pharmacy and Ethnic Minority Communities Research Lead for the Principal Trial, University of Oxford, and Roisin O'Hare, Lead Teacher Practitioner for Pharmacy lead teacher, teacher practitioner pharmacist for the Northern Ireland Universities Network. And with that, let's get started with the session. Some of the results from the CND's second annual racism in the pharmacy survey, which ran from June the 24th to July the 6th, may not unfortunately come as a, as a surprise to many. Results reveal that as many as 53% have experienced racial abuse at least once from a colleague in the past six months. Respondents who identified as being Pakistani reported a particular, particularly high level of racial abuse from colleagues, with 69% saying they had been subject to racism from co-workers during this time. So first of all, I'd like to go to Roisin and Janice to talk about um, if this resonates with their experience of racism in the pharmacy. Hello. Um, so I think it's really great that we've got this this useful data because uh, it gives us a good indicator. And sadly, it clearly shows that there is a bit of an, an issue. However, I think it's important to recognise that the issue is not just in pharmacy. I think we know and we've seen that, you know, there are challenges everywhere in every profession and in every aspect of life. But the good thing is that actually it's well and truly on the agenda and it's great that C&D are taking this forward, but also the great work that the RPS is is doing in this space. Um, And I think the challenge in community pharmacy is that there's probably a mixture of inadvertent and deliberate racism because I think there's a real gap in knowledge and we've got to look at help people understand what racism actually is. And I found that the work that the RPS have been doing on microaggression has been really helpful. And I've spoken to a number of people because I think sometimes people don't realise that they're being racist, don't realise that that banter or those comments could can be offensive. And we need to do a lot of work to try and help broaden the knowledge and the and the thinking of everybody within pharmacy. It's not it's not going to be a quick fix and we all need to work on it. It's a great opportunity with all the publicity around racism that's happened after the football. I think for us to capitalise on that and to highlight some of the better things that could, could go on within the in the profession. I think we should also bear in mind, though, that a lot of what happens and most of what happens in community pharmacy is really is really good. So I don't think anybody should be thinking that, you know, this is a that community pharmacy is a terrible place to work. There's clearly a challenge we need to face into. But I also wouldn't want anybody to think that that this is this is everywhere and everybody because that's clearly not the not the case. So I genuinely think that there's some work to do on the importance of language and picking the right words to explain things. I think people say things uh, without thinking properly because they're not stepping into the shoes of those people that they work with and thinking about how that might make them them feel. But the important thing is for those of us that are working in community pharmacy, I think to call that out when we hear it and when we see it. And that's that's something for us all to do. We've all got a part to play. It is not enough to be passive in this area by just saying you're you know you're you're not racist you have to be 
active in this area and I think there's an important part that line managers can play and particularly in community pharmacy uh, and in the larger organizations the the field teams by observing and listening and calling it out in a nice way when you see it it's not about being very critical and um, doing it in a coaching and a supportive and a, and a learning way it clearly is harder to do with patients uh, but there are ways of dealing with those comments in patients dealing with whatever it is that they are usually complaining about or whatever the issue is but just helping them understand how that's made you feel and I found in my experience that 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 does does help educate and spread the spread the word one thing that resonates with me particularly is that um, I remember speaking to one of our pharmacists and she said when she joined the community she knew that initially she was being tolerated as the pharmacist because she was the, the way that people would actually get access to their medicines and she worked with that community and she said and then I became accepted and I was part of that that community so we need to work on that wider engagement and education and we need to start sooner than when when it gets into the community pharmacy team so there is a a role for us to play up upstream and I actually think it probably starts in schools and schools are doing a lot of work on that it can't be just community pharmacy's responsibility to suddenly take all its employees and try and re-educate them we need to build that in all the way along and it is about leading by example you know so we can't expect uh, people to change behavior if we're not all demonstrating that ourselves so it's about taking that personal that personal responsibility and making a making a difference so um i would say to line managers if you hear something call it out but also if you have a complaint about something you need to start from could it be true not assume it isn't true start from could it be true and ask yourself what you can do about it and face into it at the moment not after the you know after the event and it will require us all to be courageous these are difficult conversations but pharmacists have have training in how to have difficult conversations this is just about having a difficult conversation in a slightly different different way and there's an opportunity for everybody to look at uh, look at their own data but also particularly in a large organization to look at exit data when people leave just to find out what the reasons were and that will really help build that picture so that we can actually take proactive steps so I think that was all I wanted to say initially if that's okay I'll pass over to Rosin thanks thanks Janice and, and thanks Naima for having me here today it's wonderful to, to get to chat to everybody so um in my day job as, as Naima introduced me I, I work in a hospital environment also at the universities both here in both universities here in Northern Ireland but I also am the president of the Guild of Healthcare Pharmacists, which is an organization that represents our individual members who work in hospitals, GP practices, and also other NHS organizations across the UK. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what we do, actually, and then think a little bit about, reflect a little bit on what Janice has said already, and thinking about this isn't just something that happens, of course, in the community pharmacy, it happens to people in every environment in which they which they work in, and it shouldn't, you know, and really what, what Janice said about being an advocate, I think that's just so important, and the whole concept of making everybody stop and think and reflect on their own unconscious bias, or conscious bias for that matter, and what what is it that we can do about that, and how do we call it out, as you rightly said, Janice, that's just so important, you can't be a bystander in this um, you everybody every individual has a role so we as the guild we, we provide the individual pharmacists with a powerful voice we have around 5,000 members um, across the UK but we're also part of a larger union unite the union which is 1.4 million members and there's 100,000 of those in health so there's a, a huge weight of support behind us and we're we're delighted that we have that and we're able to offer that to our members um, one of our main strands of work is, of course, to support, support our individual members when they come with queries and any issues they may have within their workplace. And unfortunately, racism and a lack of inclusion has been something that has raised its head, particularly actually recently. I think people have found a bit more of a voice and a bit more confidence because this agenda has been raised. And so I'm, I'm delighted about that, that we get to hear a few more stories and we get to try and unpick some of this with all the colleagues that are here today. As an organisation, I, I personally and I know all my, my colleagues around the executive team are absolutely committed to the promotion of quality diversity. And I think the word that resonates most with me is, is inclusion and creating an inclusive workplace, whatever that is, whatever your protected characteristics are, so that you walk in, that you feel welcome, you feel included, you feel your voice is important and that it's heard. And I think that's really where I like to emphasise to people is that what you need to think about. Did you feel welcome? Did you feel included? Did you feel when you raised your hand, when you raised your voice, that someone listened and they acted? And as Jana said, that they assumed it was true. They didn't assume that you were 
creating trouble or whatever it is that you know prevents people from from promoting and, and from from escalating an issue that they may have I personally believe the diversity of our profession is such a strength and I think it's something that we need to celebrate celebrate our differences and celebrate how that really represents the society which we serve and how this is something that we should be so proud of and we should be able to I mean it really it, it, all of the studies show that a diverse business a diverse organization is stronger and is more imaginative more creative and more successful than one which is which is non-diverse so let's let's change the narrative and just talk about how positive this is and how it's so important that we celebrate this and how do we get to that space so I think it's important coming back to what Jana said and obviously Naima earlier on is that it's everyone's role within this to be inclusive and to make inclusion part of our daily practice and if it's not why is it not so how do we get to that space how do we find out if we are inclusive so a lot of people this year in organizations big and small small trusts large organizations are looking at what their practices are and how how people maybe feel excluded and that's a good place for us to start isn't it we in the guild we, we published our equality diversity inclusion plan earlier this year in march 2021 20, um, and within that we appointed a, a chair of equality and diversity who's here today professor mahenta patel to help support us in our decision making and it really has been a tremendous light that's shone on really during our meetings and I've, I've personally really valued his insights into things that we say things that we do and how we look at things through a different lens we also are really trying to think about what can we practically do to offer our members and you our, our pharmacy professionals out there and one thing we have put together is an inclusivity checklist for for meetings to make people stop and think about what they're doing during the meeting but also thinking about who is around the table and how are you going to change who's around the table how are you going to get different views and how do we support you to do that so there, there are things that we can do there are practical steps that we can take in any environment in which we work it's not really good enough to start, stop stop and sit back and go i'm okay that doesn't affect me i'm i'm grand i've thought about it and i'm all right it's not enough you need to go further i need to really think about this so we've shared some actions today. I know um, I do want to keep talking here now. I could be talking all day, but um, on our website, and I'd encourage you to go and check it out on, on the Gill website. But also we're going to continue. This is this journey is, is absolutely only, we're only taking our first steps here. And um, we will share as, as we move along with, with the actions that we've taken so far, working very closely with our, our colleagues in the RPS as well um, to try and promote this agenda and where we can help along the way. We really welcome your opinions on this as well. So if you think there's something else that we can do or something else that you would like to support us with, please get in touch and um, president.ghp.org.uk. I'd be delighted to have your email um, and let's work together. I think that's my message I want to stop with at the minute is that it's everyone's job. It's your job and let's let's make a change together. Thanks both. They were really great contributions. Um, so according to the CND survey, 31% of respondents from all ethnicities said their experience of racism in the pharmacy had prevented them from applying for certain jobs. This rose to 37% and 36% for Pakistani and Indian respondents, respectively, and even higher, a 43% for African pharmacy professionals. So as well as respondents reportedly avoiding applying for certain jobs, several even talked about leaving their place of work and leaving the profession altogether because of their experience of racism. So I'd like to direct the next question to Aman Anol. So um, does this ring true with your organizations and could affirmative action to tackle racism in pharmacy help towards improving recruitment and retention of pharmacy professionals? Brilliant, thank you um, for that question. So um, I suppose coming at it from two perspectives. So from my own experience as a hospital pharmacist um, and also um, thinking about what I've heard as a head of professional belonging, I think there was definitely some um, truth in that sentiment. Um, I've worked with people who look like me, um, from a you know from a junior uh, pharmacist level, and then as soon as you get more senior, it definitely changes the you know the landscape changes, and you don't see yourself um, at those um, senior positions. And I've definitely seen that both going more senior in a hospital pharmacist as a for hospital pharmacist, but also entering national roles as well. So I can see how the lack of visibility and representation um, can put people off from actually applying for jobs because if you don't see yourself reflected in those roles, then you're less likely to um, apply for those roles. And then within the head of um, professional belonging at the RPS, people have really um, engaged with me and shared their lived experiences, both on an individual basis, but also from the workshops and the questionnaires that we did to kind of help build the strategy. 
And the key thing we heard there um, was that, again, that role modeling is missing, but people don't feel that they can apply for those jobs because they don't feel that they'd have a fair um, chance. So um, even though those roles are there, they don't feel like they're going to be given the fair opportunity as their white counterparts when going for those roles, which is really sad to hear and that people are being put off from even put, doing that first step because they don't think they're going to have a fair process. So I definitely would agree and that resonate with that. And that's not just from a role perspective, that's seeing themselves at conferences, um, being you know on panels, presenting as well. So they just don't feel that there's avenues for themselves to kind of go into this space. And you know, you'd have to be quite a brave person to put yourself forward and be that role model. So we need to empower people to do that. So there's definitely more that we can do. Um, and so it is about actually thinking about our recruitment processes. And I just also wanted to add that intersectional view. So um, yes, from a race element, there's you know that pressure, but also if you add on the fact through gender in the mix or disability, you know, you're even more or less likely to um, consider taking that role because you think, oh, that job's not for me. We know with women, you know, they are more likely to go for a job that they are 90% more capable of doing than their uh, male counterparts. And if you already feel like you're going to be disadvantaged because you have a disability, that's going to add to that mix. So then that gap just gets bigger and there's that lack of representation. And then the second part of the question about the affirmative action, that is a really interesting question because your initial reaction might be, of course, you know, we need people to have that visibility and representation and role modeling to encourage others to do the same. But then the other side of that is that it can be seen as tokenism um, or it's just not seen as a, you know, it doesn't embed long lasting change. You know, is it just someone's there to tick that box, which is what we don't want at all. And we should be thinking about what else we can do um, to support that. So um, are the recruitment processes fair and are the hiring policies fair? But also is the, is the culture in the workplace fair as well? Because it's one thing getting the job and being on that, being part of that table. But is, is your voice actually going to be heard? Are you going to be given the power to make decisions or, you know, contribute to decision making so um in some way yes you need someone around the table but it's all everything else that supports that because you can get the job but are you likely to stay if you're not going to be taken seriously or being acknowledged or think that you're you know inferior and you don't want other to other people around the table to think that you've only got the job because of the color of your skin which isn't fair either um and so it is all about embedding those other practices in place at the same time and thinking about unconscious bias and that being addressed in the panel that's um, supporting to recruit um, that candidate as well. So it is all about, it's not just about one thing, it's about the whole system and the whole system change to enable long lasting change to happen because we don't wanna be having this conversation in another five years time either. Um, I'll stop there and invite Noel to um, take part. Thank you, um, everyone. Um, thank you, Aman, for uh, starting the conversation uh, on a really good footing. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to thank Naima and the good people at Chemist and Druggist for uh, investing in this conversation. However, unfortunately, this is, this is an issue that's continued to plague pharmacy and the wider world, for that matter, and it will continue to do so. And so we stop applying plasters and actually understand the true pathology of the disease that is racism. Um, to quickly answer the, the first part of the question with regards to you know um, my experiences and uh, whether going to a place where I'd feel welcomed, it matters to me. It matters greatly. It matters when you go somewhere and you know you can see your face. It matters when you go somewhere and you know you can be you're heard. And actually, diversity is not the same as inclusion. Uh, there are two things that are similar at the face of it, but the two things that are also quite distant and very different. You can be diverse, but if you don't have a group, a voice as a group, it means nothing. And that's where inclusion comes in. Okay, inclusion is, I think I read a study um, not too long ago that says that people feel, begin to feel included and begin to feel like they have a, a voice as a group when they represent about 30% of the uh, organization or the workforce. Now, that to me is inclusion. Inclusion is not perhaps about the number, but so much so as having a voice and being heard. Because I believe, I speak for myself and my people when I say that we are tired. We are tired of false promises. 
we are tired of you know equality statements. What does your statement mean to me? And what are your actions? What are you going to do about what you say you want you want to do? Because it's 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 all good and well being not racist, but are you anti-racist? Anti-racist takes action. Being not racist is a passive thing. So I'll stop on that front there and I'll talk a bit about affirmative action because this is something that actually I've been quite flippant on throughout my life uh, as I've gone through the different stages. As a young man, I thought it was disgusting because why should you pick me based on my skin colour and not my merits? Because I'm brilliant, I'm black, I'm brilliant and I've got things to offer. But now that I've thought about it and now I've actually reached those places, now that I've been the sole black face in a meeting, now that I've been the sole black voice of an organisation, I've realised one thing and that one thing is that it's very lonely. It's very lonely and it's very tiring having to explain yourself and having to speak about your experiences and you know, and having to tell people what you bring or what your people can offer and what your rights are. I shouldn't have to tell you what my rights are because I want the same rights as you. I want to be a human, not first class a human, not second class a human, first and foremost. So now, um, this is a discussion that is perhaps best served by a long format discourse. And I chose the word discourse specifically because this is a discussion. It's a discussion between two sides. And the solution lies somewhere in between my rights and your responsibilities. Now, please forgive me when I say the word your. This is not a divisive thing. It's just gonna allow this conversation to flow a bit smoother. <laughs> if I could explain your as in everyone and go individually through who your is, it would be a bit of a long discussion, but I don't think we've got the time for that today. So it's a discussion between two sides. However, um, given that we've only got five minutes, I thought the best way to perhaps outline uh, the people who want to perhaps understand affirmative action from the point of someone who's lived through these things and someone who has seen and the, you know, the benefit that it would bring, I'd tell a parable. So I'll begin by saying two statements. I want you to write these down and let them marinate in your conscious and subconscious until they come, until you have come to understand them in both realms of your psyche. Then I'll follow on with a parable after which uh, I will present a finishing statement of my own, uh, talking about my experiences as such. Um, as with all good stories and parables, uh, it will get weird at times and perhaps even convoluted and confusing. Uh, but I would like to say that this is a good parable and I can guarantee you that the end will be worth your investment. So my first statement is this, we cannot, and I repeat, we cannot have a conversation about our rights without first conversing about your responsibilities. Now that is a statement that rings true. I believe it's something that all the people who've spoken before me have said. Uh, Janice said this quite well, in, in, other, in other words. Um, Eamon Aman said this quite well as well in her own words. But we cannot have a conversation about my rights or anyone else's rights for that matters without speaking about our responsibilities or your responsibilities. Statement number two is that olive branches make a good nest, but ultimately they are at the mercy of the wind. They're at the mercy of the weight of the trees that hold them up. Human beings are fallible. The wind is bound to change. Uh, and eviction from this tree that we are nested in is at the whim of popularist ideals and ideologies. So I want you to tend to our roots. I want you to ensure that whatever efforts you're making, they're looking at our roots. They're looking at stabilizing these changes forever and you know for the future. So I begin my parable. Now, to own and use a car, you need car insurance. Insurance premiums are largely based on gender, your postcode, the number of drivers in your household, how many years you've been driving, and how many years your parents or other additional drivers have been driving, and the type and cost of the car you're driving. If I want you to grab a pen and paper and tally up the points as I go through this, okay? Now, imagine you are a 24-year-old black male, first-generation or even second-generation immigrant. Statistically speaking, you won't be living in the posher neighborhoods. So minus one point, please. We'll go, we will forego gender for now, uh, but let's continue. One car at home, minus one point, shared by the entire family, minus another. Now you've been driving uh, for only one year because you've been unable to afford the, you know, the lessons. You've been able to afford the license or due to the financial constraints. So minus another point. Now, the parents have only been driving for three of the seven years that they've been in the country, minus another. Financial constraints meant that you could only afford a 400 pound car with no modern safety features, minus four points. God forbid, but this young man is constantly pulled over by the police for driving late at night after his shift at the factory. 
Each time when, there is, when no arrest is made, they find something wrong with the car, a bald tire, a rear wiper hanging by, you know, masking tape. Sometimes it's fine, and, but other times it's an endorsement on the license, both of which are financially crippling. The record, his record will not only affect his future, but the future of his children, who will then have to declare his, you know, uh, um, his uh, history uh, on their insurance uh, applications. The polar opposite is young is a young white female living in a decent postcode. Both parents have been driving since they could learn, driving a newer car with anti-collision systems and better anti-theft technology. She works just as hard and at the same factory perhaps, but the likelihood of her being pulled over is slim. The likelihood of any malicious intent from the police is, is even slimmer. Now, it doesn't take a genius level of intelligence to see how this is akin to the systemic oppression that permeates through every existence, every avenue of our existence. This is a simple example of how systemic failures can often aid the growth of one group whilst stifling the survival of another. I say survival, not growth, survival, because it does go as deep as survival. You see, I recently passed my registration exam. I opened the results and it was a glorious moment, but I wept. My success was a combination of all my efforts, of all the hours I had spent in the library of, and of course my intellectual minds, uh, or was it? Truth be told, I wept for, one, for other reasons. I wept because I was in a big, massive five-bedroom house in a quaint little village that I'd bought for my mother, but the friends I grew up with weren't. I left them behind. It hurts me to say that, but I left them behind. The family living back home, they're not. They don't live in the luxury that I have. And if statistics are anything to go by, then all of my siblings and cousins, uh, a scary proportion of whom won't achieve half of what I have achieved. So I wept. I wept because I was sitting this assess before sitting this assessment. I knew that one in two of my black peers won't pass assessment, the assessment the first time round. That's one in two. Imagine in this room, all of you look at your children. Imagine one of one in two of them will fail. How does that make you feel going into any situation? Now, to understand the measures of affirmative action is to understand what has been offered to you by your brilliance and what has been offered to you by your privileges. Now, often the latter is a vehicle that allows your brilliance to shine because, damn it, I am brilliant. I am black. I am brilliant, but I am also black. And it's my skin is my sin simply because I wasn't born in a white place and at the white time. I have been deemed a failure. I have been forever told that, you know, I am brilliant for getting for achieving what I have achieved. But if I am brilliant for achieving what I have achieved, what does that mean about my peers who haven't? It's not that they weren't brilliant, I assure you of that, because I am not the most clever of my peers. I'm not the most clever of my friends. I am simply the lucky one who had that privilege to get me going, to get me started. So thank you all for listening to this today. And I hope you remember one thing, which are the two statements that I said earlier more than anything else. It's not about asking for a handout. It's not about any, anything else other than just simply asking to be heard and to be seen. And I think affirmative action is one way in which we can achieve that goal. Thank you. Thanks very much, Noel. There were some really powerful statements. And Aman, thank you as well for your contributions. So perhaps challenging internal racism is the, internal racism is the easier part. The CND survey revealed that pharmacy workers continue to face racial abuse from patients, with as many as 63% of respondents reporting this in the last six months. The lack of real progress on tackling the issue has left many pharmacy professionals feeling stressed, demotivated and alone. Several respondents said that they didn't know where to turn for support and others suggested the pandemic had made the situation even worse. So now I'm going to go to Elsia and Mahendra for the next questions. Have you both witnessed or experienced this type of behaviour towards pharmacy staff? What support systems are there in place to protect, to protect staff and where should we be signposting to people to who are experiencing racism in the pharmacy? So Elsie, if you'd like to take that first. Hi, thank you very much. And thank you very much for inviting me here today. Um, it is a privilege to be able to talk about this issue. So with regard to the question, uh, the first thing that I want to say is that um, the statement say that um, tackling racism internally perhaps is the easiest part, and I will totally disagree. Uh, to start with, the, the amount of racism that we see in the workplace is not easy to tackle. The racism that we experience in our place of works are very subtle. Um, 
very difficult to pinpoint, but extremely damaging. So that is not easy to tackle. Let's start from that point. In terms uh, with experiencing from patients, I have done it. Um, and one of the reasons why I removed myself from working in community was because of that. I felt I was perhaps more protected working in a hospital pharmacist from the resistance that you get from, um, from some of the patients. And um, there is no protection for that. There is no protection. You are in a community pharmacist and you pretty much what I hear is that you have to live with it. You have to accept it because you find that when you are experiencing that, none of your colleagues will, will protect you. None of them will stop it. Uh, sometimes you are felt that you are the one with the problem. Many of the community pharmacists that I have spoken to, they live in constant fear that they are going to be referred to the General Pharmaceutical Council, that one of those racist patients may refer them to the General Pharmaceutical Council, and they are going to be investigated. Then you have got this member of a staff that's supposed to come and provide a service a service of a caring service, a service that is going to impact probably the health of those customers coming to uh, in the community, the community that, uh, that community pharmacist that is placed at the heart of that town, at the heart of, uh, and that person have got this mental burden that they have to be extremely careful what they do because they are in fear that they are going to be abused, they are going to be referred, and this is the sort of things that we don't stop to think. And um, I don't want to, like Noel said, I don't want to be divisive, divisive but um, BME, Black pharmacists, we come to work with a huge, huge mental burden. It's just not about, am I going to uh, make a mistake? It is about if I make a mistake, when I am referred to General Pharmaceutical Council, how I am going to be treated. But also, if you don't make a mistake, if you look different, uh, I have heard of pharmacists being threatening with being referred to, you know, pharmaceutical council because of the way they talk, because they don't speak proper English or because they have got an accent. So um, the, the, the situation is not an easy one. It's not an easy one. And um, in terms of where you can find that, um, where we can refer these this pharmacists, I would like to say that we have consistence that will protect them. The truth is that we don't. Um, you have to be perhaps a member of the, you know, the PDA. Not everyone is a member of the PDA. You, you rely that if you are referred to your pharmaceutical council, you are going to be treated fairly. I can tell you for a fact that that is not the case. That, um, and we know it, that the General Pharmaceutical Council, the fitness to practice, I've got a problem. I've got a problem where they, if you are black, if you are Asian, you come out worth that any white counterpart. The PDA, um, I myself, I have used it. I've known people that have used it. And sometimes it's about how much money do you have to defend yourself? How much energy do you have to defend yourself? And that is why, um, we have to do something within our profession that is going to hold people to account. And we have got this of uh, patients are always right. I totally agree they may always right, but we have to make statements where we say racial discrimination is not going to be accepted. We make those statements where we say we are not going to accept any violence against our staff. We have to be very clear that racial discrimination is also violence against our staff and we are not going to accept it and um this is not going to, this is not happening we are not that um eloquent we are not that impactful when it comes to protect our pharmacist our pharmacist technician our pharmacist assistant that are being discriminated by patients by the workforce we don't do much about it all that we are doing is talking about it all that we are doing, we are making promises about it. It's more than a year since Joe Floyd was killed. It's more than a year that everyone came out and said, we are not going to tolerate racial discrimination. Here we are again, doing another uh, survey. Our staff, our members of the profession are telling us that nothing has changed. 
So we have to start thinking about it is time for us to stop talking about it. And it's time for us to start holding people to account. And we're talking about people to account and talking about patients to account. And we are talking about holding members of our profession to account. Racial discrimination is illegal. It should not be accepted. And we must stop trying to put a blanket about it, trying to uh, have heard, which is quite of, uh, offensive, telling me that we have to be careful about the language that we use. Racial discrimination, even when you are not talking about it, even when you are being dismissive about me because of the color of skin, even when you are telling me that I didn't get that job, because on that particular day, I didn't did that well. So my 20 years of experience, my 20 years of me, you know, burning the candle on both ends, doing extra, uh, taking extra qualifications, that doesn't count. That is offensive. And we need to take count of that. So there is no protection for us. That is the, um, the, short, um, the short answer for the question. And there is something that we must do about it. And personally, I think I, I am very tired now of the, the way that pharmacy is dealing with racial discrimination. We are being very, um, uh, I would say very passive about it. We have got huge amount of work being done and I celebrate all of that. But I don't see one piece of work, work that is talking about who or how we are going to hold people to account. And while that is missing, racial discrimination is going to continue. And we, every single one of us that is experiencing it, are not going to be safe. We are not going to be safe from the um, General Pharmaceutical Council. We are not going to be safe from the patients. We are not going to be safe from our members of the staff, our colleagues that are doing that against us. Um, and I will allow Mahindra uh, to talk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elsie. Thank you. Um, and, and a great professional to follow here. I, I'd like to just put some of my views forward here in terms of um, my being an academic for many, many years, um, looking through the different streams, work streams, colleagues, students coming through the system and now um, very respected healthcare professionals and pharmacists in their own right. Um, and then having worked uh, for many years and still do closely with the, the RPS and now moving on to, to the Guild of Healthcare Professionals, uh, healthcare pharmacists, and also advising the GPHC and working with NHSE and I on the Joint Inclusive Professional Practice Plan. And I think bringing that experience, we, I'm looking at the screen here that we have, and Elsie rightly says that it's about action. And I think it needs a lot more of these faces. It doesn't have to be the same faces, but to knock on that door, to work with the colleagues, to, and to keep pushing at that agenda, and more of us to do that. I think that's something that translates to action. The rhetoric has gone on for many years in terms of racism, as it has with health inequality, which I'm very passionate about. And that, that brings me on to something where I look at equality, which is a, a real passion for me in many ways. I did my PhD around health inequalities. It spurred me to do that. But I also, for those people that don't know, I was a... a um, um, before I went into academia uh, and sacrificing a, a very good income at the time, um, um, that I had pharmacies in particularly, one was a noticeably white area and one was a predominantly um, heavily populated South Asian community. And it was that that led me into doing my PhD and that, that led me into where my interest enthusiasm and my real determination to address health inequalities arose from, as I said, at the sacrifice of a very lucrative income. Um, one of the pharmacies was, was pitched, as I've said, in a, a local village. When I started that pharmacy, I had this inferiority, inferiority complex, and I still do. People find it hard to believe. And is it something that's ingrained within us through our upbringing, through the generations of how we've come, come up 
Uh, I don't know, and I still battle with that question. And it's all personal views here. And I thought, am I going to be accepted in this little lovely village? Um, and people stopped coming into my pharmacy. I was the only village pharmacy, and people would travel. The next pharmacy was one and a half miles away from me, um, but they would still go. Now, it was a, it was a, a working to middle class area. When I had my other pharmacy at the same time, that was the prejudice against me. Um, but fortunately, I managed to, to work with them, provide the service, and they all became my friends, really. So that, there was a silver lining to that. Um, but it was, it was a difficult challenge at the time. I took, go to the other, across the other side, where there's a large South Asian population, now, this had two pharmacies, one right across from me. And I knew that my business would, would, would possibly, the gamble was by buying that pharmacy, one where there was a white staff in that pharmacy. Now, imagine a very high concentration of South Asian uh, uh, families in that area. Um, and then across the road, literally 50 yards, 60 yards across the road, you have this, that the staff was all Asian, um, and there was me in there. And I was thinking that the opportunity here is that to, can I bring some of those people from the white serving pharmacy into this pharmacy where I felt that there was already the attraction from the ethnic minority communities because of the staff there. And it did happen. But it takes that work to do that. The point I'm trying to make is that we have prejudice against not just colour, but we, we ourselves, or I, for example, coming from an ethnic minority community, have to look at myself, that am I going to use that service? How many people will walk away because they don't see people of an ethnic minority uh, uh, workforce within that place of work? And, and feel that they feel better in, in other things. Just as somebody from a white, the general population would think, actually, there is no white faces here, should I be moving into the ground? And it was that that made me, you know, it, it, it was something that was very rewarding for me because it became very successful. Moving on to the fact that through my academic years, I asked this question, I've said it before, um, I'm a real one for wanting to bring, as all my academic colleagues, is to help and support students as much as possible. But what I saw was, and I became an admission tutor, but within the admissions tutoring, where is the front face of people from ethnic minority communities as senior admissions tutors across our, I can't remember, 30-odd schools of pharmacy up and down the country? Look at that landscape, I ask. And yet, you've got 44% of the workforce that is of a black and ethnic minority origin. So is there something there that we need to look at? Are we representing our students appropriately and reaching out to those students in a manner that we need to look at this cultural understanding and awareness more closely? And I'm trying to get underneath the floorboards here. I think the other side of this is, that early learning, that early cultural togetherness from both staff and people and colleagues has got to be there, particularly if it starts from, an, from a university institution and how we can push that. University Farm Schools Council are working very, very hard to bring that agenda to the forefront. But it needs investment. It needs more partnership within that. And then to move on is... I would also like to ask the question, when we talk about racism, are, are we, if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we make a self-reflection, are we truly, truly unprejudiced in everything that we do? And where does our prejudice lie? And perhaps that same reflection in the mirror could give you Away, and we talked about different. I think Roshin had mentioned uh, uh, how we do things different. And is this something that I'm asking 
you to think about and reflect on within your own practice, but to be a critical judge of your own self. How can we do things different in view of the issues, the stark inequalities that are unacceptable that we've seen for decades and decades? And that is something, and then an action plan from that to move that further forward. I think in terms of the, 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 the reflection itself, could that be something that you could work with within your teams as well at work and for them to reflect on how things can be better and be, be improved or be supported? And I'm looking at how do we support people get into the higher roles. When we talk about discrimination here uh, and prejudice and racism, we, we hear, and, and rightly so, the, the colour of that landscape at the very top level and the composition does, is not reflective of the, the general population. But we also have to understand that somebody from an ethnic minority community may not want to come forward, A, because they've already got a preconceived idea that I'm not going to get that position anyway, B, are they going to understand what I've said because of my culture, because of my ethnic, uh, the way I've been brought up? Are they going to understand that I may not exactly understand it the way they do? And what do they understand? And that brings me on to the fitness to practice differentials and the student attainment, and that's what, I, as an academic, I bring that. And I think we need to invest and work with the, the students from ethnic minority communities more in the sense to, from, and not just in the final years, but right from the beginning, if they, if they example, if they, if they can't secure summer placements, they're already a step behind in terms of the other students because they, they're not picking up that practice knowledge. And it's the same with employment. If we can't bring them into that platform, we need to understand their confidence levels. Can we put into place the mechanism behind supporting those confidence levels? And it, there may be failure, it doesn't mean to say the guarantee, but what is the support mechanism for anybody failing and at least they've tried and not be hit down in more ways than one? And I think the, the, the final part is the fitness, the practice scenarios. If they don't understand genuinely that they've actually been breached of the regulations, then should they be penalised for that? And I am asking everybody to open their eyes, to look wider, so that we do everything we can to understand what's brought to the table. And I think in terms of the support, the, the support is very, it, it, there's, lot, there's support in different manners here. You know, we at the Guild of Healthcare uh, uh, Pharmacists have produced a 10-point action plan following the Joint Inclusive Professional Practice Plan straight out to its members. This is what we want. This is what we're looking out for. That is impressive. You know, this is making straight delivery into action. What is it that we can do more active? That's one organisation. If we did that right across the spectrum, and if we critically looked at ourselves in the mirror, where can we do things better? It's not to criticise yourself, to support those people that we may not understand. And the last thing is, I have to mention the fact that cultural understanding and cultural competency is not just around how people of ethnic minority communities are perceived by the general population, but we also need to look at the, the cultural understanding and awareness has also be, has got to be there within the ethnic minority community because there's so, many, so much inter-prejudice there as well that we need to bring to the forefront and therefore improve that understanding from not just the general population, but also the ethnic minority and the heterogeneity groups that we have within those groups.
So I, I, I'll, I'll end on that. I'll end on that note. Thank you very much. Thanks both. Um, so I just wanted to kind of um, end on some final stats and then move on to some questions. So for the second year running, the majority of respondents, 66%, said that more people need to call out racism when it happens to help tackle the issue. While 62% said every workplace needs to have an effective complaints procedure with disciplinary action against racist colleagues. Unfortunately, despite the increased awareness of racial inequality following the Black Lives Matter protest last year, CND survey revealed that 67% of pharmacy professional respondents said their experience had not changed at all over the last 12 months. Where some, had, where some changes had been implemented, some respondents said they felt it was just a box-ticking box exercise with no real effect. So perhaps the big question is, what more should pharmacy organisations and employers across the profession do to tackle racism? So I'm conscious we don't have a lot of time left, but I thought if we could hear from each of our panellists. Um, Amandeep, if we start with you. Um, thanks for that question. Um, so I think there is an element, um, and Janice picked up on it earlier, about knowing what a racist act is, what is racism. And um, Elsie's already mentioned it. It's not always, it, it's not always explicit. It can be very subtle. Um, and it's, it is termed as a microaggression. And I know with the work that we were doing at the RPS when we formed our reference, um, source. Not everybody knows what the, even the word microaggression. So I think there is an education about what is like a racist, what is racist behaviour, um, and you know people need to recognise what they're doing is not okay. I think there's also something about that internal reflection of employers and pharmacy organisations actually really acknowledging that their um, you know what they're doing is not okay, or are their policies fair? for people and um, what more they can do to believe people when they're saying that they have been experiencing racism and actually taking it more seriously. And then there is that culture change. You know, um, you just touched on the thing about it seems tokenistic, but how do we stop it from feeling like a tick box exercise? But there has to be a commitment up from across the um, profession on that. So the RPS Inclusion and Wellbeing Pledge is something that we've worked on as a professional leadership body is to show that commitment. And by signing that pledge, it's a commitment to ourselves as individuals, our colleagues, teams and organisations to say, we know we're all kind of on this journey somewhere, but we've got a lot more to do. And how do we go away and what reflections we need to take away on that? Because um, that educational piece has to come from within. It really has to be something that you need to recognise um, that, it, you know, you need to do something more about it. And then our anti-racism statement, again, has been really helpful, especially from an RPS perspective, in putting an action plan forward so we know that we've got something to work against and deliver against and also measure ourselves against something so it's not just words um, and that we are always trying to do something but there is that educational piece running workshops on allyship again you know it's always how bit that people struggle with so it's offering support on how we can support people um, but acknowledging there is that accountability piece that we definitely need to be stronger on and talking to the GPHC and informing them of the experiences that people are having so they can update their standards and guidelines as appropriate. Thanks, Aman. Um, Elsie or Noel, do either of you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, just to point, I think, um, I think we need to start believing, believing um, those, you know, those personal stories, those life experience. Often you find that, um, you know, when People speak up, they are not listened to, or their experiences are not taken seriously. So we need to start thinking and believing what is being said to them, to their employers. Take it seriously. Don't just um, brush it on the carpet because um, that is not the way forward. And the, the next thing to do is, um, I believe we need to have like a thermometer to see what is happening in our profession. We cannot have just a survey every single year bringing the same results, they do that more often. There is a lot of that can be learned from the, the people plan from the NHS. Um, I, I worked as a quality diversity and inclusion lead for one particular NHS trust, and there is a huge amount of work that we know that can be done. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just need to implement these, um, these action plans. We need to put those action plans and, and say how we are going to do it. Um, I love the fact that we are doing talking a lot about shit. I love the fact that people are saying that, yes, we are going to do it. 
what we need to start is like doing it and monitoring it and doing pulse surveys like every three months, like it's in so many NHS classes being done. We can do that within our pharmacy profession. And this is the problem. We are not doing enough, but there are quick steps that can be implemented that doesn't need a consultation. We love consultations. We love to hold meetings and get together and start thinking and thinking and thinking. There are things that can be done quickly, can be implemented, and you can get the information from there. We cannot have in a year's time the same pharmacist telling you exactly the same thing. Thank you. Thanks, Elsie. And Roshin, I think you've got something you wanted to add. I just want, I mean, obviously, I know um, both Amanda and, and Elsie have, have covered absolutely almost everything there, but I just want to sort of say it, it is really about us. It's really about every single person making a change and not, as you said, Elsie, and as you said, Amanda, waiting for something else to happen. It's us. We make the change in our own workplaces. And if there's not somebody there already, maybe it's your job, you know, maybe it's your job to stand up for whoever. You don't have to be from a particular minority group. You need to stand up and decide what you're going to do. And I think that's just so, that's my big message to everybody is just, what are you going to do? Thanks. I think, Noel, did you want to add something in as well? Yes, no, no. thank you um, <clears throat> to the speakers before me. Um, my, the last thing I'd like to say really is, will I be judged by my peers? Will I be hired by my peers? Will I be taught by my peers? Will my, be, my peers be protected for protecting me or for looking after me? Because often if you're at the top of that hill, if you're at the top of that mountain and you are the only one there, you look after the person that looks like you, it's often seen as though your favourite it's often seen, you know, it's often frowned upon. And I've seen many, many people who have gotten to the top and forget who they were or what they wanted to do and what they wanted to achieve because they knew or they thought that because they were there, they had to act or speak or do things in a certain way. Um, and last but not least, to be my peer, you don't have to be black. You do not have to be black. As long as you understand me, as long as you have taken your responsibility in giving me my rights, you are my peer. My peers aren't always necessarily black. Anyone who is anti-racist is my peer. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Thanks, Noel. And I think just very quickly, we might have um, time for a quick comment from Janice and Mahindra, if you wanted to add anything in at the very end. Yeah, I was just going to say, it is down to all of us individually. I take it as my personal responsibility to, to drive this agenda forward. Um, and whilst I was the superintendent at well, and a, a number of you will know that I've, I've recently left, um, I made it my personal business to look into anything that was flagged um, about racism, to make sure that any complaints that came from customers that I had personal sight of, and we have excluded uh, customers if that rate behavior has been unac unacceptable but I think it's all about taking action and doing and doing something about it I know that I can only speak for the organization I was working for but any fitness to practice cases irrespective of, of what what background would be fully supported so um, Elsie mentioned about the you know the cost of support um, and legal you know activity that that would be supported. And I, I go back to my point earlier about asking if it could be true and getting the facts and the data and always having that in your back of your mind, because sometimes it's hidden. So it might not appear initially that that is the issue, but you should always have that awareness in your mind that it could it could be linked to racism and asking that and delving into that so you can support. But unless, unless the people who are leading an organisation of whatever size take a personal stance and, and lead by example, then I, then I think we all struggle to bring, up, bring about change. And I think everybody has said that it is about being active in that. Um, and yes, it might start off small and you can only do take small steps to start with, but it spreads, doesn't it? So that passion and that enthusiasm spreads like, like wildfire. And I only started off small with the things I was doing in the in in the organisation, but I've I've held four. I've had meetings. I've gone personally to meet think people. I followed up and got their personal stories and share and shared those. And gradually, it spreads a bit as a ripple. Have, has has it been entirely solved? Of course, it hasn't been entirely solved. But just because it's hard to solve doesn't mean we shouldn't start. And what we need Obviously, to be able to do is get the data to make sure that actually we can see that we're making progress. So how whatever the data shows, let's hope that next this time next year, when we're looking at the data, we can see an improvement and we just need to increase the pace of change. Thank you. 
Thanks, Janice. Unfortunately, sorry, Mahindra, I think we've actually just run out of time. We have had lots of questions from the audience that we haven't had time to address because, you know, the discussion has been so interesting and we've covered a lot of points here. So we'll definitely follow up with our panel members after this. Um, on behalf of CND, I'd like to thank all of our panelists today and for everyone who joined this really important discussion. And we look forward to taking these um, discussions further. That was CND's clinical and custom content editor, Naima Kalachand, rounding off CND's second annual Race with the New Pharmacy webinar. As she mentioned, plenty of topics were discussed during the hour, including the need for greater education and awareness around what actually constitutes a racist act and the importance of everyone playing their part in tackling racism if and when it happens. Some audience questions were also left unanswered and we have posted these in the Chemist and Druggist community platform. To share your experiences and join the discussion, head to the CND community, where you'll also find more exclusive stats from the CND survey. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on SoundCloud or your preferred app. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.